So, two days ago, we finished off by talking about the flood, right? We spoke about the idea that water... How was the mikveh tour, by the way? So nice. cool. Yeah? Okay, amazing. So, we were speaking about the role of water in the purification process, right, spiritually. And that Hashem used the great flood, what's called the marble, in the times of Noah to purify the world so that the world would lose its corrupt state and be able to be used as a tool to serve Hashem. And so if you think about it, really, the flood was able to elevate the world to a new level, as we discussed that. Then they got the seven laws, the seven Noahide laws, which are an opportunity for every single human being on the planet to connect with God. Every single time somebody follows one of those laws, it's an op- a law, a commandment is actually, from God is actually an opportunity for us to connect with him. Mitzvah, you guys had a mitzvah? Mitzvah comes from the Aramaic word safta, which means connection. So it's really like almost Hashem throwing us like a rope of connection every time he gives us a commandment. And so after the flood, the whole humanity, all people got these seven commandments, seven ropes and lifelines, so to speak, ways and channels for us to be able to connect with Hashem, which we were not able to do before the flood. And so the flood, yes, it destroyed, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, about the idea that there was destruction, that there was pain that took place in that process, but at the same time, it raised up the world to a level it could never have reached without it, right? So it was, it was doing something positive. And so now we're going to take everything we learned about the flood. We spoke about Noach. Noach's name means rest. That because of the waters of the, what are called the waters of Noach, the world and Hashem was able to rest. Rashi, the simple commentary, says, why is Noach's name called Noach? Because before the world was created, the angels were harassing God on a constant basis. They weren't letting him rest. They were saying, how can you let the world go on this way? It is so corrupt. And then everyone rested from their argument that there was something bad with the world. So that's, that's a side um, explanation for that idea. Now we're moving on to page 10, <clears throat> where we are going to connect the idea of the flood with the idea of the challenge of making a living specifically and the challenge of getting through day-to-day, just the challenges of life more broadly. But here it's going to speak about it specifically in the context of making a living, which for all of us, it manifests for different people in different ways, right? Some people it's a challenge of getting through college so that you could make a living. Some people it's a challenge of making a living. Some people it's the challenge of keeping what you already have, right? Managing wealth, whatever it looks like. It's a process that can feel like somebody's drowning in it because it can feel very, very overwhelming. So let's speak about why God would put us in a world not only with an evil inclination, which gives us free choice to either serve him or not, but in addition to that, puts us into a world that challenges us constantly and distracts us from being able to serve him and sit, hold ourselves up away and learn Torah. Okay, so... We're going to start with the idea that of this concept called Shiabud Haparnasa. So, top of page 10, Shiabud Haparnasa literally means the obligation of having to make a living. And Shiabud actually means slavery. And it's the idea that we're bound almost as slaves to the fact that we have to chase money, we have to chase materialism. It's just the way God made the world. In order that we can actually function, we have to chase it. So it's, it's almost a function of slavery that we're a slave to it. And so we're going to connect these two ideas now. So top of page 10, we're going to read the first line. The hine, now, shiabud haparnasa, the obligation to make a living, nikra gamken menoch, is also called the waters of peace, the waters of noch. Because as we discussed, mayim rabim, that we started off from shira shirim, the many waters are referring to two things. They're referring to the waters that we feel like we're drowning in, the challenge of making a living, and the waters 
of Noah in the time of the flood. And so both of them have this commonality that they're somehow, because one, they're connected one with the other, they're waters of peace. And so we have to try and understand how can you call this process of chasing, having to constantly chase after money a process that's peaceful. Okay. So Kamamara, as our sages have said, the Medrash explains a story that God, well, we'll read it inside and then I'll give the context. Shabacharlo Avram Avinu, that Avram, our forefather, Abraham, Shibud Neged Gehenim, chose slavery over pur- purgatory. How do you say Gehenim in English? Purgatory, hell. Okay, so what, what's going on here? So <clears throat> the Medrash explains a story that God came to Avraham and he told him <clears throat> that his descendants are going to go down into Egypt, that they're going to suffer, and eventually they're going to, he promised Avraham they're going to be redeemed as they were, with a lot of wealth. They ended up emptying Egypt of all of its wealth. But there was another time where God came to Avraham and said, your descendants, until Mashiach comes, so throughout the process of the whole future generations of your descendants, they have to go through some sort of cleansing process. And I'm giving you two options, and you can choose which one. Either what's called Gehenim, which is a life of, of, of purgatory, a life of physical suffering, or what he called Shiabud. Shiabud is this idea that you feel like a slave to money. Yeah. You write them on the board. Sure. It says it inside here. Um, page 10, second paragraph. These are the two options. Shiabud. Comes from the word Eved. Eved means a slave, a servant. And it's the idea of the process of obtaining a livelihood, okay? The process of obtaining. Sorry, excuse. I'm just trying. Livelihood. It says it inside. And then we have Gehenna, okay? Something that we don't speak about so much in Exodus, but sometimes we do. The idea that there is basically what's called a cleansing process in order for us to reach a new level, which we're going to discuss inside in a moment. Per, I don't know how to spell Pagator. P-E-P-U. P-U-R. P-U-R. Great. Okay. And it explains that Abraham chose Shepherd. And so... It, there's actually a story in the Gemara that's very interesting. You guys learned about this idea that we're not allowed to serve idols. It comes up a lot, right? And when we think about it, it's almost like laughable. It's not something that most people struggle with today on a day-to-day basis. Like, I really want to serve, you know, this carved out beautiful piece of stone, but um, I'm not allowed it. It's not something that we really struggle with. But it used to be, well, some people do, because there are some, if somebody gets into a certain kind of religion that does, you know, like Buddhism, for example, has a lot of these symbolisms that are considered actually outright of Sara. But most people going through their day-to-day lives, it's not actually a struggle. It used to be, until not too long ago, okay, kind of long ago, but in times of the Gemara and the Talmud, that it was a huge, huge, huge test for the Jewish people. It was the most seductive thing in absolutely in the world even some of the greatest sages of the time fell and gave in and started ended up serving idols and it got to a point at some point that idolatry was so prevalent it was so difficult to overcome that and 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 so was lust there was two things going on uh what was called giloy arayas which means improper relationships lusting after relationships that are not allowed according to halacha and so to speak lusting i don't know what the word would be for it after serving idols literally 
And it got to a point where people were just like dropping like flies. They were just, they weren't able to give in. The temptation was so incredibly strong. There was a group of rabbis who actually got together and they prayed to God and asked God to take away the desire, to take away lust and to take away the desire to serve idols. And Hashem granted their wish and the next morning they woke up and they noticed that all of the chickens had not laid any eggs. And they realized, okay, the world cannot function if there's no lust. So they said, okay, God, please give back lust, which God did. Um, but that desire for idol worship left, left. It left the world. It, um, it left not only the Jewish people, but it left the world. It's not something that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. However, the Gemara says what was put in its place is the desire for wealth, for money. So, and interestingly, the Alter Rebbe on this Gemara once was quoted saying that he's not sure which is worse, the desire for money or the desire for idolatry, because in a way, idolatry has some sort of spiritual element to it, even though it's not God, there's something spiritual there, right? As opposed to money, which is just pure materialism. And we're gonna get into that. Yeah, we're gonna get into that money is not evil. Money is not evil, but the idea of making money a God, which is kind of this process of Shiva where we feel like we have to live in a certain way, act in a certain way in order to survive, and it's all dependent on this physical thing, that um, is actually our test. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge for us, and that's the challenge that's called the many waters. It's the challenge of making a living in a way that feels so overwhelming that it almost becomes a god for us, right? You had a question? Um, Yeah, I guess like with the removal of like the desire for idolatry, couldn't you say that like idolizing like public figures and like stuff like that would fall under that category so it wouldn't be considered like the sin of idol worship so somebody who like has a huge huge you know celebrity crush or whatever you want to call it you we we would not say you're serving idols no um in that direct context but this whole idea that we put certain people on pedestals because of the fame that they have because of the money that they have we're worshiping fame and we're worshiping money and they all really come together worshiping status we see them almost always one thing um because fame gives you money and money gives you status and status gives you money it's all kind of interchangeable and the and the truth is that we do worship those things today and that is incorrect we need those things right we need people to do amazing things so that everybody knows about them and we need certain people to earn a certain status so they can change things and we need a lot of money in the world so we can live our best lives and give and help other people but when it becomes a means in and of itself that turns into what we call idolatry and that's why rabbis like you can't want to or like rabbis can't want to be rabbis like they need to be chosen like that kind of thing um rabbis could want to be rabbis a rebbe is more like a leader of an entire kind of he's not supposed to want to um a rabbi could want to be a rabbi that's fine (laughs) most people yeah so I would say more a rabbi. But yeah, I mean, a rabbi, yeah, rabbis shouldn't want to. My father was a rabbi. It's, it's a hard job, put yeah. it that way. Um, but but it's, yeah, there's the idea that if you're looking at something for as a means unto itself, even Torah learning, to learn Torah so that you could be the person who knows the most Torah and get a certain status in that way, that's turning Torah already into something that's not, right? It's, it's putting it onto a means unto itself. It's losing God in the picture there. And so when we speak about this Mayim Rabbim, this is the challenge we're speaking about. It's the challenge, it's not, it's, it's, first of all, it's the challenge as we discussed that 
in order to make money, it's very difficult. So it's going to describe in the Mimer shortly that in the time of the Beta Mikdash, have you heard this quote that, have you heard this idea that um, Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey? Have you heard this mm-hmm. idea? So the Gemara describes that in the time of the Beta Mikdash, what that meant was flowing with milk and honey was that you put in work, you put in your effort, and according exactly to your effort was your reward. So like you planted a tree, it, it grew. Like you didn't need to tend to it continuously and then protect it from all the, these elements and like you gave the sheep food and they just they flourish they it says that their milk from the the milk is um, goat's milk that the milk would just literally flow out of the goats just like fully easily that there was and then the date palms it's date honey the date palms that were growing here were so luscious and rich because you just planted it and it became beautiful and perfect that the date syrup would flow down from the trees and the milk would flow and it would literally flow down the mountain. It was just what we call shefa, abundance. So people had to work in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. Most Jews in that time were farmers, but they didn't have what's called Shia Buddha Pranasa, this idea that you're a slave to making money, that you put in work and you actually don't know what's gonna come out of it, which some of the people who work the hardest in the world earn the least money, right, if we think about it. It's like, absolutely, it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And, and that wasn't the case in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. You worked, you, you know, if you didn't work, you just lay in bed, you'd be hungry. But if you went out to work, you put your little effort in, you got, you got abundance. Today, it's not the case. <clears throat> We're constantly chasing after it, and we don't really have a choice. Our, we have a choice whether to make it a means into itself, whether to trust God in the process, whether, how we want to use that money. But the fact that we need to work hard for money and we don't actually know our efforts and our rewards don't they don't match fully all the time at all. That is a process that we struggle with day to day, and that is what's called Mayim Rabbit. These are the many waters. And we it's not just with money. It's the fact I was just thinking about this yesterday, like raising children. It doesn't have to be so hard. Like God could have made it easier. Most animal species, like they have a child and then it just starts like walking and hunting and pretty soon, pretty quickly. But God gave us children that are like it takes a tremendous amount of effort and to get the reward of having healthy you know, children and raising a healthy adults in society. These processes of just getting through the day and being a good person aren't difficult, bless you. And so we're going to have to try and understand, first of all, why did God come to Abraham in the first place and say, choose one? Why couldn't we just not have purgatory and just not have... Um, Shia, but not have this have to slave after making a living, right? Why, as uh, Ellie was asking, why did God have to bring a flood into the world in the first place? Like, why does it have to come in this process in this form? So, the Alter Rabbi, in order to explain this idea a little bit further, is going to bring an analogy, and the analogy is that of the process of the soul when it leaves our body, when a person when a person passes away, the soul leaves the body and ascends up to heaven. And before it ascends up to heaven, it goes through a process of what we call Gehenna, purgatory. And so we're going to try and understand, he's going to use this as an example to explain what the upside could possibly be of the flood in our own lives of this Mayim Rabin. And so he explains like this, that the soul going up into what's called Gan Eden. Have you guys heard of the Garden of Eden? Mm-hmm. So the Garden of Eden was originally the place where Adam and, and Eve were. They lived there. It was, a, it was a physical world that was a lot more spiritual and in tune with godliness. There were actually trees and fruit and, and animals. They're real ones. But it was a completely different conscious, conscious level of reality of God. Um, but then when they ate from the tree of, of knowledge, 
God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and sent them to what we call the underworld, which is where we are right now. We're in the lowest of the lowest of the lowest worlds where good and bad are mixed together as one, where it's not obvious what's good and what's bad and that God is the ruler of the world. Um, but when our soul leaves our body, it goes back up to this place called Gan Eden. Okay? Not, a, not a physical one like where Adam was, but a spiritual one because our soul is purely spiritual. Um, our soul is completely, completely spiritual. And this existence of the Garden of Eden where it goes to basically get its rewards for everything it did in this world, for all the good things it did, and to what we call bask in the rays of the Shekhinah. That's how Chassidus uses the word. Nanis Meziva Shekhinah to be able to learn Torah with a deep pleasure and connect to God with this, with this, with truly as a, in a state of a reward. That's a pleasurable experience. In order for that to happen, the soul has to leave go of every single residue of physicality that it picked up on its process in this world. Yeah. Um, so isn't that why we do like Kaddish, like after someone dies, like they get like the purification trying to help get them we actually don't say Kaddish for the first either 11 or 12 months after somebody passes away. And then we start to say Kaddish. And the reason for that, wait. No, no, no that's, not true, that's not true, that's not true. So sorry, we don't visit, we don't do the unveiling. Yes. Right. Right. We don't do the unveiling, I'm so sorry. We do Kaddish right saying, away, 100%. Don't do Kaddish. Sorry, we don't do the unveiling and we don't um, visit the grave. Right. For the first 11 to 12 months. Either it's 11 months or 12 a months. Year. A year. Yeah. And the reason for that is because during that time, it's the maximum amount of time that a soul will find itself mm-hmm. in this cleansing process before it can actually go to Ganadin. So we leave the soul alone, let it do its thing. Um, so Kaddish 100%. We're helping. Basically, there's different, there's different ways that the soul can get rewards up above. Either from its own efforts, right? And from efforts that are being done in its memory down here, or either just by efforts that are being done. Some people just weren't that great of people that exists, right? Some Jews just weren't that great. Um, some, m- most of them are, but some of them just like weren't. But if their children or even their grandchildren or even a friend or the rabbi does something in this world, in their honor with them in mind, their soul gets an aliyah and gets elevated and gets that reward up above. So Kaddish is, help, is that process. Yeah. I... Maybe I'm thinking like wrong, but isn't there like a for the like unveiling? Is it like short? Is it always a year? Is it shorter for like children? Or am I making that up in my mind? I wouldn't know. We should never know. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, just, at least as far as I know, like I don't know if you were thinking like babies, but like when like Hillary passed, it was a year. Yeah. No. No. I know when she passed, it was a year, but I was. I don't know. I haven't heard that. It's possible, but I haven't heard something like that. But the idea for the reason why that is, is because some souls only need a month, some souls need a few weeks, and some souls need the maximum time, which I think is 11, 11 or 12 months. Um, and that process is, is a painful process. It's a painful process for the soul, which is why we call it hell, right? Hell is not associated with pleasant, lovely things. Um, and the question is, like, why? Why, do, why does the soul have to go through this painful process? And Hasidus explains that the reason for that is, is because the soul, when it ascends to Ganesha, to the Garden of Eden, to reap the rewards of everything that it gathered and did in this world, to experience its true rest, right, and all the culmination of its work, it has to be in a purely spiritual state because Ganesha and appreciating God on that level and delighting in God in that place 
is a purely, purely spiritual experience. But the soul spent a lot of time down here in a physical body. And so in order for it to actually experience that and actually experience pleasure from it, it has to shed away every vestige of physicality that's latched onto the soul throughout that period of time living here, which is why tzaddikim, righteous people, we don't wait a year before going to visit their grave. And the reason for that is, is because they didn't enjoy from any physicality even while they were in this body. So they, that cleansing process is not necessary for them. Yeah. But then why isn't the soul immune to getting these blemishes in this world? Because it becomes, it becomes what's called hitlab shut, totally enclosed in one with the animal soul. So there's an aspect of the godly soul that's untouchable completely untouchable, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what you experience in this world, it's untouchable, it's always there. That's that, we're going to get to that, that's that Mayim Rab, that's that spark that the Mayim Rab and the love can never wash away. However, the soul, there are elements of the soul that do get impacted by this world. And it's not even necessarily in a negative way, it's just the fact that now, so it's an example, the example that I like to think of is like this, everyone... I don't know if everyone has hit the stage, but everyone gets to a stage where they realize that their parents are not actually as perfect as they thought they were when they were kids, <laughs> right? And it hits everybody at different times. Um, and it's a painful realization for most people. It, it comes with a little bit of pain, a little bit of sadness, a little bit of loss, like that image, you know, everyone thinks like you ask, you ask a child, like who's the most beautiful woman in the entire world? And they'll say, my mom, right? Um, and then, it, you know, it hits that, that process of realizing that your parents are human and flawed just like the rest of us. It's, it comes with a bit of pain and a bit of loss, right? Um, but if you never went through that process, you cannot have a normal adult healthy relationship with a parent. Because if you approach a parent as an adult thinking that they're perfect and they're not flawed, you expect of them things that you can't, you will never be able to actually see them in the eye and have a proper relationship with them as an adult. So it's a painful and yet necessary process so that you can actually deepen your relationship and take it into adulthood okay another example is just that in order for us to you know if you give a little a, a two-year-old right if you put take a class of two-year-olds and you give every single one of them a tiny little toy car and then one kid you say okay i have a special present for you take them outside and you give them a huge version of that car a real car they're going to start crying They'll be like, where is my car? Like, this is not, I don't, right? You've just given them the biggest gift ever. They're going to start crying because they don't appreciate that. They want their little toy car. But if that child grows up and still only wants that toy car, then they're never going to actually experience the pleasure of someone gifting them a car or whatever. That's just a very, but whatever that looks like, we can't experience the pleasures that come with being an adult and the joys and the depth of it if we still have that perception that we had as children. So we have to grow out of that and let it go. And sometimes that comes with a bit of a painful process. Let that go, shed that perspective so that we can then have a deeper perspective and a deeper pleasure even within this world. Yeah. Okay, that was beautifully said. Could you also then say that like, the point of all this is to go through again, like to go through the pain because then you get closer? That's exactly what we're saying. That basically if you want, it, it, your soul to truly appreciate and bask in the light of Hashem and experience pleasure and joy from it, you have to let go of the pleasure and joy of this world. Because if you come into Gehenna being like, where is my martini? Like, why is there no beach here? You're going to be very disappointed. And, and, and the truth is um, that one moment of joy here is unparalleled to the joy and the depth and the beauty and the pleasure that can be experienced in the world to come. We're trying to draw that all back down here into this world. So when Mashiach comes, we're going to have both. We're going to have this world and the pleasures of this world. 
and the deeper, more spiritual pleasures of the upper world. But right now, we have to let go of that perception so that we can actually experience the reward of the world to come. And that process is a painful process, but not only it's a necessary process, it's a, it's a helpful, good process where we have to shed all of that, of those perspectives um, from this world so that we can then go and come clean, so to speak. Have you ever learned, um, I don't know, maybe you were in college or in class or something, and you start a new year and the teacher's like, okay, forget everything you learned last year. <laughs> like now we're, I don't know, now we're going from calculus to, I don't know, like if you go from algebra to calculus, I don't think I've ever learned calculus, sorry. Um, I think algebra and geometry as far as I got. But if you're stuck in that old model of learning, you're never going to be able to go on to the next thing. So you probably hear this many times. You've probably heard this by teachers. Like, forget that. Like, put that aside because if you're taking that model into the next stage, you're never going to be able to actually grow. There was a sage um, who, there are, two, there are two Gemaras, there are two Talmuds. I don't know if you know. One was written in the Babylonian exile and one was written simultaneously around the same time in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem Talmud is much more difficult to learn. It's considered a little bit more deeper as well. It was written in the Holy Land, not in exile. And there was a sage who prayed and he fasted before he finished the whole Talmud Bavli, was moving and transitioning onto the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem one. And he fasted many, many fasts to try to forget, to beg Hashem to forget the whole Talmud Bavli. He wanted to forget everything he had learned so that he can then go on to the Talmud Yerushalmi. And the reason that is, is because if we really want to level up, we have to shed some of those old perceptions. And again, that can come sometimes with pain because leaving the way that you've seen the world behind is, pain, is painful many times. Shedding even parts of your identity or things that you've seen is so important. And move, in order to move on and get to the next level does sometimes come with what we call pain. So the way that Chassidus actually explains this whole idea of Gehenna, and as we'll see, um, this whole idea of the struggle within this world as well is really, it's a stepping stone. It's a process. Leave that old mindset behind so that you can experience a completely new depth and a new integrity in your relationship with God. Okay, so that's why the Altar now is going to bring this idea of Gehenna, right? Which, which is not, um, we don't speak about it a lot in Chassidus, this idea that, yeah, like we're going to go through this process. Many people, you know, they live their lives down here, um, thinking about that process they're going to go through. Like, okay, maybe it'll be a drop less painful if I don't do this. You got rather Kaufman teaches you, right? I remember Yossi, my husband once walked into a class of his, because like, he was, I think he was teaching the next one. And he just heard Robert Kaufman saying, he was like, the, the, that six minute difference of you like staying an extra six minutes or not in Gehenna, it's not worth you spending your whole life like calculating like how much time am I going to spend there. Like it's just not, it's like six minutes difference. Like it's not, it's not actually worth it for you to sit and live your life down here as what's going to happen in my process there, uh, right? We, but we, we do want, we, um, we, we want to utilize and be present in our day-to-day mom, -day moments here. We're not supposed to be always thinking about it. But it is brought as, first of all, we do need to believe. One of the 13 principles of faith is that there is reward and punishment and that there, is, um, there are consequences to our actions, good and bad. So that is necessary. Um, but here we're talking about this process as actually a positive one and giving it a little bit more of a logic context so that we can then get back to this question of why did the flood have to happen? Why did it have to be, come with some pain? And why does our day-to-day -day life have to include struggle that sometimes also includes pain? Like, what's, what's the whole point of that? Okay, God could have done it differently. Any questions or comments before we go inside?
Yeah. Hi. So I just wanted to make sure I understand. God gave Abraham the choice between getting on board or um, us having to um, obtain a livelihood. And even though Abraham chose obtaining a livelihood, our soul still goes through again. Yeah. So, so. Um, Hashem was specifically speaking about the physical experience in this world. It could be one of pain and suffering um, physically all the time, <laughs> or at least a very condensed version at some point, um, in order that we can then become the Jewish people that we are, bring Mashiach, and truly have a relationship with Him, or we can struggle to make a living. So either we have to, so the fact that our soul has to go through Gehenna in order to go to heaven. That was like not what they were speaking about. Rather, the process of living in this physical world, in order to get that integrity and depth, as we're going to speak about, to have that relationship with Hashem, there's two ways you can almost go about it. With tremendous physical suffering, and then despite that, you're turning to God, right? You're taking time to pray. Or with the suffering that comes with this challenge of, of, of obtaining a living. And so Avram chose the suffering of obtaining a living. Okay. But that's a good question because we still we haven't eradicated this concept called Gehenna. Yeah. So is Gan Eden heaven or it's yeah yeah okay. yeah. Okay. So there, there's many 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 levels of what we call heaven. One of those levels is called Gan Eden. There's a Gan Eden in each one of the spiritual worlds, and our soul, depending on how lofty the soul is and what it did in this world, goes to different levels of Gan. It goes to different levels within heaven, but we call that Gan Eden. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna go inside. Page 10 in the middle, this means, okay? Check them all. This means, so when we're going to bring an example, okay, of this idea of why Abraham chose, Shiabud chose, what well, I'm just going to call it slavery, but we know what that means now, the Mayim Rabim instead of purgatory. It is impossible for the soul, Lavo Eden, to ascend and go to the Garden of Eden. Lehenot to get pleasure mizivashchena from the rays of God's presence, ad shetered kodem until it first descends lachen before this begehenim to gehenim. Okay. As they have said about acher. Okay, so now I have to tell you about acher. So acher is an interesting character. He was a very very great sage in his time. The Gemara relates quite a lot of stories about him. His name was Elisha ben Avuya. And there are different opinions about what happened to him, but he basically snapped in some way. He didn't become crazy, but he became a heretic. Okay, there are different stories about what led to that, different opinions. He was one of the greatest sages and Torah teachers of the time, and something happened. He became one of the greatest heretics of the time. Like, and you can only really become a heretic if you know the whole Torah. You have to know what you're, like there's actual like, um, People just call people heretics. It's like, you actually have to be a really, really, really learned, smart, deep person to be called a heretic. He was actually a heretic because he knew exactly what he was rebelling against. He understood the depth of it completely. And so he's called in many places, Acher. He's not even called by his name. Acher means the other one, the different one, because he was like an ultimate heretic. What happened with him is that he actually ended up keeping some of his students at the time because he was a tremendous Torah scholar and he knew a lot of Torah. So he would teach them Torah, but at the same time he would be like riding on his horse on Yom Kippur and like meeting with prostitutes and like a lot of stuff. Um, but when he went up to heaven, they had a really big dilemma. 
because on the one hand, he had done a tremendous amount of good in the world. He had connected to God in a very deep way. He had learned a lot of Torah. And on the other hand, he has done a tremendous amount of bad. And so when he went to the gates of Gehenna, they said, we can't take you. You're right. like, you've done so much good stuff. And then he went to the gates of heaven and they're like, we can't take you. You've done so much bad stuff. And he was bouncing around. And that's considered the worst, absolute worst state for a soul to be in. Not to be here, not to be there, to be bouncing around. Um, has anyone heard of this idea called a dibuk? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So it's like the, the stuff movie. of. Oh, really? I don't know. There's a movie. Stuff of my nightmares. But basically, the <laughs> idea is it's a tr- in the time of the Balshemta, the the Balshemta basically like eradicated um, a lot of these ideas, shadim and dibuks and these things. But dibuk was a soul who wasn't allowed into heaven and wasn't allowed into hell, and he was like bouncing around. He hadn't found his place. And what would happen? These souls would sometimes latch onto another person and start to speak through them literally like there are stories of a woman who would just wake up one morning literally possessed and speaking in a man's voice and then they'd have to go you know to some sages and do some stuff and send the dibuk away uh, that's a side point but that comes from this like wandering soul who then has to like latch onto something we don't we don't really have stories of that today thank god um but Acher was one of these souls who was bouncing around until it was said his students actually kind of like his students were rooting for him down in this world as well and saying um, but basically, this is what they said. They said, Mutav de li daasi. It's better for him to first go down and be led into Gehenna so that he can then go into the world to come, go into Gan Eden afterwards. So this is just a quote, and the background is the story of Acher, and this quote is basically saying, it's a good thing to be able to be allowed into Gehenna because only through going through that process can you then go into um, heaven. So, so they were saying, you know what, let's, let's, basically let's let him in. And at the end of the story, he was let in. There was like, when he was let in, there was smoke coming out of his grave, literally. The students saw like smoke coming out of his grave. And then when his next student died, his next student said, I'm going to take him with me to heaven. And then the smoke stopped. Was, anyway, interesting stories with Acher. He's an interesting character. Um, but the idea here, wait, I think I just went backwards. Yeah. That was like, wait, what? Um, here, page 12. Okay. So the idea is like this. Begam, in addition, the Nahar Dinar is a, is a process of purgatory. It's called the river of fire. Who here lost me last week if fire is a purifying? So in a spiritual context, fire is seen as purifying for our soul. Not as a phys, in the physical world, but the idea is that it goes through a river of fire. It's not a physical fire, but it's represented by fire. Just as fire makes something totally lose its form. Right, so the the Nahardina, this river of fire, the soul has to pass through it and lose all of that physical form that attached to it in its lifetime. So there is actually an element of fire so, being a purifier. I guess you were that, right. Like, was there like I guess a reason why like it was water than first fire when like God decided to like purify the earth if it like in a way does the same thing of like so fire does it in a spiritual level. Like a spiritual concept of fire does it to our spiritual soul. It's called fire. Like that's why when we think of purgatory, when we think of Gehenna, we think of heat and fire, right? Yeah. It's, there's no fire there because there's no physicality. There's not a physical existence. But fire, what we know about fire is that it causes something to lose its form, right? You put something in it and it melts away. And so the idea is that when we go through this process that's heat and fire, what's the idea? Fire and brimstone, as people call it. It's the idea that we're losing our old form and letting go of all those beliefs, which again, comes with pain. 
it does. Um, but it's in order that we can then become that pure soul that we were before and then actually appreciate the depth of the reward from the fact that we came down. Yeah. So is that why when the flood occurred, the water was boiling? Maybe. Maybe we can add, like, that the heat, that heat causes things to lose their form. And we know that the world was, like, completely destroyed. Maybe if the world had just been, like, covered in some water, it would have... It would have remained, you know, yeah. it wouldn't have been yeah. completely, but maybe that heat, I'm completely guessing here, but right. the idea of heat is, and the idea of fire on a spiritual level is this idea that it's losing its form. And so this idea of the Nahardina, every soul passes through it. When a righteous tzaddik passes through this fire, he's completely unaffected. It's not a painful process because nothing latched onto him that needs to melt away while he was here. He was living a completely spiritual existence within this physical world. But the rest of us, because things, because we got immersed into this world, as is normal and almost, almost expected of us in some way, that has to leave and it has to be melted off of us, so to speak, and melted away so that we can then experience the joys and the pleasures of the world to come. So, as has been explained in other places, the idea of this process of being um, immersed into this river of fire so that you can ascend. There's an idea that every single time the soul ascends from one level to another level within Gan Eden, because we said there's many levels, and every time that we do a mitzvah and someone's honor, we're helping them ascend. Um, and there's an infinite amount of levels that they can ascend higher and higher and higher. And every time that they ascend, they get a new, deeper perspective of Hashem. They get a greater depth of pleasure. Every single time it ascends, it has to first pass through this Nahar Dinar. It speaks about in the Zohar of this process. Because every single time, even within a small step up, if you're still holding that perspective of, oh, this level of Ganeidin was amazing, you can never appreciate the next level. So every single time the soul is going up, it is also going through this mini process of just shedding that which it knew from the previous level so that it can ascend to the next one. Okay. And so now we're going to connect this back to the struggle of making a living in this world, what we call Shiabud. Kmoken, this process that we see with the soul is the same thing, al yadei Shiabud. We see this process play out with this concept, the obligation to provide a livelihood. Through this, yecholim la'alot, we are able to ascend, lamala mala, very high, lamadrega hayater to a very high spiritual level. We're able to connect with God from a much deeper place with a lot more integrity. And our soul actually ascends to appreciate God on a way higher level than it would have if it hadn't gone down through these challenges in this world. So the challenge of making a living, the challenge of childbearing, the ch challenge of finding a soulmate, the challenges that come with living in this life that on the surface look like they're completely distracting us from our service of God are actually almost a stepping stone and a process that enables us to have a much deeper connection with God, not only in the future, but today as well in this lifetime. As we say, so let's define, oh, let's, let, me, let me read. I'll tell it to you outside, we'll continue inside because it's already 10.15. The altar is going to define Shiabud because when we hear the word slavery, many times we think of the fact that we're a slave to, let's say, uh, it used to be to kings or to the government that we have to pay taxes and we have to, we have to, you know, we owe our money to other people. And the altar is going to say that's not what that means, the idea of Shiabud, because in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, there was a lot of taxes. The Jewish people had to pay a tremendous amount of taxes in the time of the Beit HaMikdash to the Levites and to the poor people and to the orphans and to the, and to the Kohanim and to the Beit HaMikdash. There was a lot of taxes. So the fact that we have to pay taxes isn't what we're talking about here when we say Shiabud, slavery. Not that we have a master, we work for somebody, we don't work for ourselves. But rather the idea that the input that we put in to make a livelihood and the output that comes out of it does not match. 
And that means that we're constantly having to change. We don't know. We just don't know. I'm going to put the work in. I'm going to get this degree. And I might have to get another degree. And I might have to completely go to a new field. I just don't know. I'm putting the work in. And the results are not up to me. And so I have to keep on going and keep on pushing. And it's distracting. And it's challenging. And it's difficult. Um, but we're going to see. That's what we mean when we say Shia Bud. And that's what we mean when we say it's actually an opportunity for us to reach a completely new level of depth in our relationship with God in this world as well. So we'll continue with this idea tomorrow. But does anyone have any questions or comments before we finish for today? Yeah. Um, so what happens um, when, like, I guess since there's levels of Gan Eden, um, what about like people who are not great people? Do they start on like a really low level? And how do they work their way up? So, yeah, so we, first of all, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know who was great and who wasn't, and also what this, it also depends on what the root of, like, the source of their soul was before they came down. Some people have just holier souls, so they go back to that level as well. Um, but, but, yeah, let's say somebody who was just, he's Jewish, he did some mitzvahs, because there's no such thing as a Jew who hasn't done anything good, right? Even bad people still love their moms, right? They still have, like, some sort of keyboard up, something. Mm-hmm. Something's still going on there. So they're going to, get to go into Gan Eden, but, yeah, they would start off at a lower level. They'd get a lower level of pleasure. But if somebody down here does something in their honor, or not even necessarily in their honor, but they're a descendant of them and they live in a certain way, that allows that soul to keep going up. Okay. Yeah. Is naming a child after somebody something that, like, because I know that's a tradition with Judaism, like, is that something that helps their soul ascend? It's a really interesting question. I don't know. I haven't thought about it before. Like, is that, because it's very often seen as like, almost like, um, let's say it's after a grandparent. It's almost like an honor to the parents to mm-hmm. do that. Um, but I've never, I've never thought about it as, as for the soul. But it's very possible that then that person holding that name, doing good things, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the name's sake of that parent. It's, it makes a lot of sense, but I haven't ever actually thought about it too much. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Yeah, but that's the idea, that the soul is constantly, constantly, constantly ascending, mm-hmm. and we can help souls ascend by doing things in their name. Okay. Which is why sometimes you'll have people come and write a name on the board of somebody who passed away, saying, like, this class is in honor of that person, and when we learn Torah in that honor, their soul actually gets an aliyah. Yeah. Okay. We'll continue tomorrow. Have a great day. Thank you. It's um, a movie. It's like an old, like... Called Di- it's called Dibble? It's called The Dibble. It's like an old Yiddish movie. It's like oh black and white. Gosh. And it's like... Probably stuff of kids' nightmares. No, it is of kids' nightmares. <laughs> oh it's like my this, like, gosh. It's like... I don't even remember how, like, 